Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight, we're talking about feeding recreational horses. This live event and podcast is brought to you by Neutrina. Our recreational horses aren't elite athletes that are going to cover 50 miles on the trail tomorrow or compete in a jump off, um, but they aren't quite pasture puffs either. So what's the best way to manage their body condition while also ensuring that they're getting the gut support and vitamins and minerals that they need? To help answer these questions, we're joined tonight by Dr. Claire Tunitz, an independent equine nutrition consultant and owner of Clarity Equine Nutrition, and Abby Keegan, who's a technical services equine nutritionist with Cargill Nutrition. Welcome to you both. Hi, everyone. Good evening. So I want to start with Claire. Uh, can you tell our audience a little bit about your experience balancing equine diets and your work with recreational horses? Yeah, absolutely. So I work with a lot of recreational horses. I have a lot of owners of recreational horses who really feel strongly that they want to make sure that their their partners are well-fed and getting everything they need. Um, and so we do a lot of diets. Uh, for those horses and looking at you know what they should be fed and helping them select the perfect you know the kind of correct commercial products that work with the type of forage that they're feeding and the type of housing that they're in whether they're out on pasture or stalled um, so I work with a lot of those kinds of horses and each one's slightly different and you know generally there are some similarities but um, you know there's a lot of horses in the United States that fall in that recreational horses category so um, I certainly work with my fair share. Okay. And Abby, can you tell us about your work in equine nutrition with Neutrina? Sure. So I've been working in the field um, consulting for, gosh, almost 18 years now. Um, now my role primarily is around um, thinking about what research we want to do, what product, you know, updates, new product designs, um, and then really thinking about how do we um, communicate that to, you know, our customers, our consultants, um, horse owners and veterinarians as well. Um, so spend a lot of time around that. And then I do quite a bit in terms of um, kind of some of those deeper dive consultations where help is needed with some of the young growing horses and, and some of the metabolic um, cases as well. So um, certainly a lot of opportunity around, again, as Claire mentioned, that longevity piece and, you know, how do we feed these horses correctly? throughout the different stages of their life. And, you know, one of those, I have an old um, show horse here. Um, I, I tend to collect the geriatric herd, but um, <laughs> he doesn't do a whole lot anymore. But, um, you know, how do we feed him appropriately as he's kind of become one of these recreational horses where he just rides a few times a week. So, yeah. Well, I want to give everyone a quick overview of our Ask the Horse Live format. We're going to be starting with questions that everyone submitted during registration. If you have a question that you'd like to ask live or would like clarification on a response, you can enter it in the chat window in front of you if you've joined us on your computer. We're going to do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible. If you're listening to our archive or podcast and are interested in joining us live next time, you can register to receive announcements at thehorse.com or visit thehorse.com slash askthehorselive. So with that, we'll go ahead and jump in and get started. Claire, the first question's for you, and um, I think it's, it's a good place to start when we're talking about nutrition. How do you define what a recreational horse is? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's um, it's a fairly broad definition, I think. I think like Abby was saying that she collects geriatrics. I was sitting there listening to her, you know, introducing herself and realizing, you know, I guess I would say I'm a recreational rider with, you know, a somewhat recreational horse. So I, what I do in my riding is recreational at this point, right? I mean, I share a large pony with my daughter. She, you know, competes in at the lower levels and I sort of dabble in lower level dressage and go trail riding. And I was sitting here going, oh, I guess I'm a recreational rider and he's, you know, somewhat of a recreational horse. Um, but if you, you know, look to the National Research Council, um, you know, they have some guidelines and funnily enough, they actually have a table in their guidelines that, that kind of gives a hypothetical weekly look at, um, what a recreational horse does and the energy expenditure associated with that. And so, you know, there, what they describe as a recreational horse is say on Monday is doing 45 minutes of arena riding, walk, trot and canter. 
And the next day it's doing maybe a 45 minute trail, mostly walking. Maybe on a Wednesday, it doesn't get worked. Thursday, 45 minutes of riding in the arena again, walk, trot, and canter. Friday, no work. You know, Saturday, two hours of trail riding, mostly walking, and Sunday, no work. Um, and they go on to say that, you know, they, they have other definitions of work as well, and they put recreational riding in the light work category, and it also shows up in the moderate work category. So I would say, for example, our personal family horse who works five days a week and is doing lower level dressage and jumping, I mean, he's, he's definitely in that light to moderate category. I mean, he works pretty hard. I mean, we're not trying to go out and compete at any particular level. We don't have any big show goals or anything. Um, we're just enjoying the journey and enjoying the ride, right? Um, but he's working fairly hard. There are other horses I know who get out for a trail ride on a Saturday and that's it, right? That's also a recreational horse. So there's a pretty broad spectrum of horses that fall in this category, um, but they're typically not going to be the horses that are aiming at competition at the higher levels. They're not in a super dedicated, you know, focused kind of competition program. To me, those are more your performance horses. If, um, so hopefully that's somewhat as clear as mud, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and you mentioned those weekend warrior horses, um, right. Claire, the ones that just, you know, once a week. So my question would be to Abby, when you're looking at the, the feed label on the Neutrina bags, where is this recreational horse? Is it that light work horse, moderate work? That's such a good question. To me, you know, I'm, I would be looking at that maintenance um, requirement on the label, on the feed tag, um, or the light work category. Um, but to be completely honest, so the interesting part about feed tags is generally those are written in terms of caloric consumption. And I mean, this kind of gets into a whole nother topic, <laughs> but it, it doesn't take into full account of what you have for forage. And so I think that's why there's so many people who um, you know, maybe do have a horse that is in that light work category, recreational horse that they're doing a little bit more with, such as, you know, kind of that description that Claire read off. Um, but they've got really, really good quality forage. And so it's providing a majority of those calories. And so generally the feeds, um, you know, that that are designed with kind of this half a percent of body weight, or you think of that five to six pounds per thousand pound horse recommendation for that kind of maintenance to light work category that's probably too many calories for a lot of them. And so we start to talk about these diet balancers coming into play, which I'm sure we'll get into more discussion about those, so. Well, Abby, the next question is for you and it's from Mary in Georgia. And she says her horses are fat and seem healthy on pasture. She wants to know how she determines if they're receiving enough vitamins and minerals though. Good question. So yeah, they're getting plenty of calories from the pasture and, and, and you're asking the right question of, of are they receiving everything they need? Um, I like to use the analogy of um, what I call fat, slick and shiny and I'm doing air quotes here and you guys can laugh. Uh, but how many of you guys have ever heard somebody say that? Like they look at their horse and well, he's fat, slick and shiny. He must be healthy. Have you guys heard that before? Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Right. Like it's so common. Um, and so to uh, Mary's point, right, the horse is receiving plenty of calories, but we can't visibly see by looking at a horse if they've got enough vitamins or trace minerals coming in. Um, so, and the other one that's often forgotten is the amino acids. So um, after analyzing thousands of forage samples, we actually have an amazing forage lab up at our uh, Minnesota uh, lab facility. Um, and thousands and thousands of samples come in from all across the US. Um, and, and there is no perfect forage in terms of um, meeting all of the optimal requirements that I would look to um, for even a horse that is just, you know, doing recreational riding. Um, so the way that you would determine that, I guess, is, is again, you've got all your calories, but you've got to find something that's basically meant to complement that pasture. So um, you might look to, as I mentioned, that diet balancer type of design where it's super concentrated with those vitamins and trace minerals. Um, and it's also supplying those amino acids that would be missing as well. Um, you know, the other, uh, only other thing to think about the gold standard way essentially, you know, would of course be to analyze the pasture, send it off to a lab, 
um, and then work with a nutritionist to really define exactly what your specific pasture is missing. Uh, Claire, our next question is for you, and it's from Justine in Salem, and she wants to know if it's okay to let horses eat hay between or before activities. Yeah, right, and so the, this is something, I used to be, you know, I was a good pony clubber back in the day, and, um, you know, one of the sort of rules of feeding we had in, uh, back then was, you know, you don't, not supposed to do work, you know, after you've fed them, right, and, and we now understand that doing work on an empty stomach really increases your risk of things like gastric ulcers. And so, you know, while it's not, you don't want to be feeding large meals and going off and doing gallop sets, um, certainly for these you know, recreational horses and really all horses, having some, you know, small amount of feed in their stomach is a good idea. And ideally that would be forage. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, forage, um, you know, makes a nice fibrous mat that floats on the top of the stomach acid. It's a bit like a natural fiber doormat. And it's gonna stop that, that stomach acid splashing around so much in their stomach, which is gonna reduce the risk of squamous ulcers, which are ulcers that occur in the upper portion of the stomach. Um, forage also takes a little more chewing. Um, and so the more they chew, the more they secrete saliva and saliva has bicarbonate in it, so it buffers the stomach acid. And it's important to think back to how horses really evolved and, you know, they really, in their natural setting, are eating for, gosh, 16 more hours a day. And, you know, when they eat, they are generating that saliva, which is helping to buffer the stomach acid. The stomach acid is, is produced almost constantly. And so it's sort of this beautiful system, right? They're constantly secreting stomach acid, so they're constantly buffering it by chewing all the time and pretty much constantly eating. And then we come along and meal feed them and, and kind of put a bit of a kink in that system. Um, the other thing too is is that generally after horses have eaten forage they drink. So um, you know if you're out and about in trail riding and things and off you know you might not be moving at great speeds but you might be on your horse for quite a long period of time. You know recreational riders are often in the tack for long hours out trail riding um, and having forage you know in the system helps hold water and it helps encourage them to drink. So it helps you stay hydrated. So yes, um, you know keeping. Um, you know, allowing horses to eat hay before and between activity, I think, is 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 a good idea. Oh, I for my two trail horses, I keep uh, hay nets with alfalfa in in my trailer, and so when I'm tacking, I tie the hay bags up so they get to eat alfalfa before we go riding, and it's really changed their attitude at the trailer. And when we haul to a new place they aren't looking around quite so much because they know they get out and then they get their special alfalfa treat you yeah. know, before we hit the trail and I think it's I have for I have one really pretty hot sea <laughs> mare and it seems to really settle her to have something that she's eaten before we we head out on the trail um so just that that's my tip for for uh, yeah I mean I for sure. And I do the same thing. And, you know, our barn, sometimes I arrive sort of the end of the afternoon and they haven't been fed yet. We go out to ride after school and they haven't been fed since the morning. And so, um, you know, we have big muck buckets for, you know, mucking stalls and things into, but I'll go sweep some, you know, hay off the clean hay off the hay barn floor and just put a little bit of loose hay in a muck bucket and he'll eat out of that while, like, while, while we're grooming. Um, and again, he, as you say, he's much happier in his work then, especially if the hay cart happens to come around in the middle of our ride. It really yes. helps with that. Uh, yep. Keep him, uh, keep him focused on his work. <laughs> I pony, do the uh, exact well, same thing. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a hard, and that's a hard one. And have a bit of the If the haycock dropped on Alpha in the arena. Yeah, and the the barns are always feeding right about every, every right about the time everyone gets there after work. So. <laughs> yes. Yes. So yeah, you don't want to work them on an empty stomach. So. No. Yeah, get that hay mat in there so the acid has something to chew on, air yep. quotes. <laughs> yep. Uh, Abby, our next question is for you, and it's from Elaine in Virginia. And she has a 15-year-old Rocky Mountain horse that was diagnosed with uh, Cushing's or PPID, but he's not insulin resistant. Is it okay to only feed him twice a day? Hay, that is. Yeah, yeah, good question. So number one, I guess, great job working with your veterinarian, Elaine, to identify that your horse has PPID or Cushing's, mm -hmm. um, yep. but it's not. 15 is a little earlier than, than some people might find that. 
Yeah, yeah, surprisingly, right? But it, it's it's become more and more common um, when we have veterinarians testing those ACTH levels and, and seeing where some of these horses are. So good job starting to uh, identify that. Um, and then also calling out, right, that he's not insulin dysregulated or insulin resistant at this point. Um, so that helps us a little bit too. But um, so I would say, is it okay to give him hay just twice a day? I would say yes, but um, maybe with two kind of caveats. So um, if you know we're doing hay just twice a day, morning and night with a, a certain allotment, um, number one, we've got to make sure he's got at least, you know, one and a half percent of his body weight. So if he's a thousand pound horse, at least 15 pounds of hay per day minimum. Um, and then secondly, um, that we're feeding it, if we're just doing it twice a day in a way that's going to help him to eat it more slowly, right? So if we can use a small hole hay net, um, nibble net, whatever you want to call them with the, the smaller holes, there's tons of work that's been done, again, as Claire mentioned, that you know these horses are continuously secreting acid. So if we can have them chewing more throughout the day, slowing them down, again, not have these big spikes um, in, in these horses as well. So I actually just, um, I just had that, the, my old show gelding that I was talking about, his name's Chester, he's 22. Um, and I actually just last week had him, um, had my veterinarian test his ACTH levels. And I know that they can, you know, in the fall, they can definitely be up to three times as high, uh, but his were still off the charts. <laughs> so oh, wow. we're t it's time to, yeah. uh, we've nutritionally intervened and he's done really well, but now it's time for um, some medical treatment as well. So. So there is a I think point it's where... really oh, sorry, Claire, I, I interrupted you there. Oh, no worries. No, I was just going to say, I think actually this is a really interesting question to, to just awareness point, right, for this group of horses that we're talking about. Because I think a lot of our recreational horses, there is a large sort of senior horse component to this population. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of horses maybe have busy show careers and become recreational horses right as they get older. Um, so I think it's really um, important for the owners of recreational horses to to be aware that Cushing's is out there. And you know, you mentioned 15 being fairly young, but they are seeing horses even as young as eight. Being you know, and and I know there's some contention there in the you know in the veterinary community, but but it's not not too young to be testing at you know 15. Um, and it's a conversation I have with a lot of my senior horse uh, clients um, to be talking to their veterinarians about whether or not they should be testing their horses. And, and it's a surprising number that at this time of year um, do get, I, have a, I had a client I just saw this morning, but I saw the horse this morning, history of navicular and, you know, had some hoof issues. And they were forward thinking enough to test it for Cushing's and it's ACTH values came out at 200. Well, you know, three times normal is like 100. So this time of year, yeah, you know, yeah. as Abby mentioned, we do have a higher cutoff. But, you know, just to raise that awareness and get that people thinking about that. I think it's really important. Yeah, I will add to um, I'm not sure if Elaine was also wondering if it's OK to just give hay alone to her gelding. Um, that is another thing to think about. So if he's maintaining weight, you know, with the hay, again, feeding it in the nibble net, doing your best to make sure he's at least getting that one and a half percent of body weight. If he's got good body condition over his ribs, um, then again, you might just choose something to easily balance the diet or balance the forage. Um, like, so my gelding that I was talking about, he actually weighs about 1,375 pounds. He's a large quarter horse. Um, and so he actually just gets two pounds of empowered top line balance with his hay um, and then obviously free choice salt and water, but just a simple way to balance their diet. We have a follow up question from a live audience uh, related to Cushing's horses. EC would like to know what some low NSC forage options are for increasing chewing time for a PPID and insulin resistant horse who cannot eat hay because of dental or gut issues. So that that's a couple challenges. You have um, have dental issues on top of PPID. Claire, do you want to take a stab at that one? Sure. I mean, there are some, um, there are some, you know, just like hay pellets out there from varieties that we think of as being you know, generally lower in starch and sugar. So there are like Teff hay pellets, 
and you know TAF is is typically considered to be low NSC and I just I say that with a, head, a slight hesitation in my voice because um, you know as Abby has probably seen with all the forage testing they've done you know there, there's no there's no absolute guarantee right Unless no you guarantee something you, you really know. don't know right so I run into this a lot with people saying oh you know TAF is low starch low sugar and I'll be honest I've seen orchard haze that are lower than TAF and TAF that's higher than orchard and you know really unless you test you don't know but in general, we, we consider TEF to be a lower NSC hay. Um, and so if you can find pellets from that variety, that may be a good option. There are feed companies out there that have chopped forages that are guaranteed um, low NSC. When we say low NSC, we're talking like 12% or lower. Um, there are also some... Um, uh, you know, senior feeds that are that low as well. So you could complete feed. So you could um, replace some of your forage intake with a high fiber complete senior feed for those horses. So there are some options out there. It's really just a matter of, you know, looking at all your feed labels and, you know, looking for products. And um, there are more and more, you know, forage replacement type products out there now that you that you could do. Um, beet pulp is considered a low NSC feed as long as it has no added molasses and you can replace a fairly large amount of the, I think up to like 50% of the hay intake as beet pulp. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's an option. Obviously that's not fortified, so you still need to have that balance or some source of, you know, equal type of, um, you know, vitamin mineral source in the diet. Um, I'm not sure if Abby's aware of, of any others that I'm not thinking of. Yeah. Um, another thing I've done, um, is so if you do have this is going to sound like a lot of work but i had a gilding my old my first show horse he lived to be 37 years old and he was not able to consume you know forage <laughs> or chew forage after a certain point of course um and so i was very fortunate um my dad we feed some cattle and so he would clean out the grinder mixer um i would have mm. hay tested and then it would go into the grinder mixer and get ground into small pieces um, and I would feed that to him along with, I think I fed Safe Choice Senior at the time um, as about a 50-50 diet. Um, so that's another way, you know, if you, it is a pain, right? You've got to have the forage tested. But if you do that and have it chopped into smaller pieces, I have heard of really creative things. Um, one gal actually took a lawnmower and she would mow over the hay <laughs> prior to feeding it to her pony. So I thought that was pretty creative. I hadn't heard that one before, but I know there's some ways you can do that, but, you know, as Claire mentioned, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, there's no end to what we horse people will do for our horses. No, I love it. <laughs> love it. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, as Claire mentioned, you know, there are some senior products on the market. Um, we make one called Pro Elite Senior. Um, it's got a maximum of like 3% sugar, I think, and 9% starch maybe, or uh, not much. I, I've got those reversed. Um so it's really, really low and you can utilize that with, you know, a little bit of beet pulp or some alfalfa pellets as well. So, um, but I think the other thing I will throw out there, um, the whole, you know, we have this 42 year old pony <laughs> um, that is obviously has Cushing's and she is insulin dysregulated and it, it depends on the individual horse. So, you know, we kind of use this magic, you know, 12% NSC, realize that that is the best of our nutritionist knowledge, right, from different trials. Um, but there are individual horses who will vary. So some you don't have to feel like you have to stick to that number in every case. Sometimes it's understanding with your veterinarian, you know, just how insulin dysregulated is this horse? Or are we completely insulin resistant, right? Um, they're, they're different. So something to think well, about. So I heard Claire mentioned complete feeds, um, and then Bonnie in our live audience is wondering what a balancer is, because we've mentioned ration balancers. <laughs> um, Claire, could you explain the difference between a complete feed, uh, a ration balancer, and then um, a, a concentrate, which I don't think has been mentioned yet? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. No, absolutely. And it's a great question. And it's so funny. As I said, I was out in the field today and I just had this conversation with somebody who's feeding a senior feed. And, and she said, yeah, because it's, you know, it's got all the, it's got all the vitamins and minerals in it. And I said, yeah, it does. It's a complete feed. And she looked at me a little like puzzled. 
And I said, it's a complete seed, meaning it also has all of the you know, forage and fiber in there too. And the particular senior she was feeding, you know, it's really designed to be fed as the complete diet, right? Not, no hay, no nothing else. Um, and so we were looking at feed tags. She had a balancer in her feed room as well. And I said, hey, you know, look at this tag and then look at your balancer tag and look at things like the zinc and the copper and what have you. And I'm making these numbers up, but like, you know, the senior had a, a zinc of like 180 parts per million and the balancer had a zinc of like 700 parts per billion. And, you know, the copper had a level of like 30 parts per million and in the senior and the balancer had one of like 200 parts per million. So the balancer is way more concentrated, has a far smaller serving size. And as Abby alluded to earlier, you know, they're really designed to just be the pieces that are missing in a forage-based diet, right? So they're providing that copper, that zinc, that vitamin E, the quality protein with the high levels of essential amino acids, the things that you're not going to get from your forage. A complete feed is the complete diet that the horse needs it has all the vitamins and minerals in it as well, but it also has all the fiber, but the serving size is so much bigger because it's supposed to be everything a horse eats. And so every, all the vitamin and minerals are much more dilute because the manufacturer is expecting you to feed, you know, one and a half percent of body weight per day. Whereas with the balancer, they're expecting you to maybe feed, you know, one, maybe two pounds per day. So they have a very different expected sort of serving size, if that makes sense. Um, and then a concentrate is really anything that's providing concentrated nutrients, right? So oats can be a, a concentrate. Right? It's providing a concentrated source of calories, right? And a lot of from starch mostly. Um, so our concentrates are, can be individual ingredients. Um, or you might say like a performance feed would be a concentrate, very concentrated source. It's energy dense. You might have like a 10, 12% fat performance feed. And that would be an example of a concentrate is very concentrated in calories. It's probably got one and a half times or more calories in it per pound than hay, so it's concentrated. Um, but you can have, you know, protein supplements might fall into being a concentrate too. It's a protein concentrate, 38% protein or what have you. So um, that term is, is more, um, you know, it's, it's concentrated nutrition. And I think of con myself personally, when I think of concentrates, I'm thinking unfortified ingredients, but that's not necessarily totally accurate. That's how I personally think about it. I think of forages as being, you know, hay and grass and hay pellets and, you know, beet pulp is a forage. Um, they're unfortified. They just, how they, the plant grew in the field kind of thing. Concentrates, I think of similarly a little bit. And then, uh, then we have our complete seeds are manufactured and have everything in them that you need. And then the ration balances are, um, you know, heavily fortified, small serving size, uh, almost supplements in a way, but they're, you know, one to two pounds per day. So Claire, we have a question from Katya in Washington, and she wants to know how do you ensure that a horse gets enough vitamins and minerals while not adding too many calories with something that's pre-mixed? So out of those options, what would you recommend mm -hmm. to Katya? I'm going to go with the balancer, right? Because its goal is not to add calories, right? We've already got enough. We've already met the horse's calorie needs. As, as Abby, I like, I'm going to steal Abby's, you know, fat, slick, and shiny, <laughs> right? It's already fat, slick, and shiny, right? We look at this horse and we say, this horse is in really nice weight and looks pretty good, right? I'm not struggling to keep weight on it. I'm, I can get to the ideal weight just feeding pasture or hay, but I know I'm missing the vitamins and minerals. So I'm going to go with my ration balancer because I don't need to add a ton of calories. I just need what's missing in the hay. So I just want my one, two pound a day serving size ration balancer. So Abby, we have a question from Chandra in Montana, which is on the opposite end of the spectrum. And she said that she has been told she needs to, actually it's the same. It, it, I, I read it the other way. She has, uh, horses that need to lose some puff, how does she put them on a diet in cold winters in Montana? So how do you cut back on how much you're giving your horse when the weather is extremely cold? 
Yeah, that's a good one. Um, so good for her for identifying she's got a little bit of extra puff and needing to lose that <laughs> um, in those horses. Um, so I think number one, you know, it, obviously she's identifying it's going to get cold. And the number one way to help these horses stay warm in the wintertime is to make sure they're chewing and fermenting forage, right? That they've constantly got something they're chewing on. And then those good microbes in their hindgut um, are working to break them down and sort of in, internally combust and, and heat the horse from the inside out, I like to say. Um, so if we're going to try to help those particular horses lose weight, again, I would go back to what is their ideal body weight? So if that is a thousand pounds, just for easy math, um, we're going to sort of limit their forage consumption um, to maybe, you know, if they've been on free choice hay, maybe we start at 2% of their body weight. Um, we're going to weigh that out. We're going to give that to them in um, a hay net in the morning and then the other half in a hay net at night um, so they can slowly consume it still right throughout the day and, and continuously heat themselves. Um, and then to balance out that forage, same concept. We're going to pull in that diet balancer, you know, I use Empower Top Line Balance on my horses um, at about, you know, that one and a half pounds per day for that size of a horse. Claire, I don't know if you have anything else to add to that. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm a big believer in, you know, if you have a horse going into the winter with a little too much weight, um, you know, let the cold weather help you a little bit with your weight loss needs, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> there's so much research out there now about how we're all a little anthropomorphic when it comes to worrying about our horses being cold and over blanketing, right? Um, and I think there's that temptation. And, and, and on the opposite scale, if you have a horse that's going into winter, you have an older senior horse or a thinner skin type thoroughbred type who's a little underweight, you know, blanketing can be your friend because they're not going to be burning calories to keep warm. And so the calories you're putting in are going to go into generating body mass. Conversely, if you've got the slightly overweight horses in the winter, um, you know, they're going to have to burn calories to keep warm. And so I'm not advocating you having your horses outside shivering in the cold at all. But, um, you know, let nature do what nature does, right? Horses lose weight in the winter and they gain weight in the summer when they're on spring grass. Um, and so if your horse is going into the winter a little overweight, you know, let the winter help you <laughs> with that. Um, and as, as uh, Abby said, you know, make sure you're feeding your forage and um, what have you and, and meeting all those needs. But but don't be tempted to, you know, throw blankets on and, and keep them overly warm. Let them let them burn some calories to keep warm. Yeah. And I live in a, an area that can get pretty cold. It was actually 16 degrees earlier this week um, in the morning when I went out to feed. And I think in addition to the nutrition piece, the horse management piece of having just adequate shelter and for us especially where I'm at a windbreak goes a long way to helping uh, yeah. horses have more comfort without you know necessarily layering on on the blankets I have two that don't get any blankets and then one that does because she is in full work all winter and and I need her to be able to dry <laughs> so that I can <laughs> I, I'm not right. in the barn for four hours trying to get her to, to dry out but um, <laughs> yeah, we have a question for Abby. It's from Jody in Florida, and she wants to know, how do you get your recreational horse to drink when away from home? She says she's tried molasses, Kool-Aid and electrolytes and none have helped. Aren't those obnoxious? <laughs> we can call them picky drinkers, right? Um, <laughs> my best advice, I guess, is, you know, once you've sort of identified a said picky drinker, um, if you can start, you know, if you, you know you're going to be leaving at the end of the week um, to head to a show or to go trail ride or whatnot, start ahead of time. So get them acclimated to whatever electrolytes, Kool-Aid, whatever it is you're going to use before you leave home um, and get them used to drinking that with your water. And then it makes it an easier transition sometimes to, you know, get them drinking that same electrolyte with the new water once you get there. Yeah. Claire, and any other tips you have? You know what I'm going to say, Michelle, right? <laughs> I'm going to plug salt. <laughs> I do. I do. Salt, salt, salt. <laughs> so I feed my horses with a... more salt than I ever thought I would because of Claire. <laughs> Everybody so, forgets yeah, about I'm... salt, though. I don't know about you. I go in, the, you know, the nicest of barns, and 
there's no salt available. It's it's like the one thing right. everyone forgets about, right? Yep, yep. And I've I've fixed a number of picky drinkers um, by just making sure they're getting you know adequate salt every day. Um, you know, and I I've, I've worked with a number of horses that you know I used to live in in Northern California and near. Um, you know, some the foils of the Sierras. And when the weather would get nice in the spring, we'd have these horses that really hadn't done much all winter. And then we'd have these lovely 80 degree days and their owners would take them on these ambitious trail rides up the mountain because it was beautiful out. And, you know, occasionally I'd meet with, a, you know, somebody have a tie up episode. Um, you know, all their horses wouldn't drink or what have you. And we have to remember that a horse's sweat is very different from human sweat. Horses dump a lot of electrolytes in their sweat. It's very concentrated in electrolytes. And when you don't have a lot of circulating sodium in your bloodstream, you don't really have much of a thirst reflex. So if you sweat, if your horse is sweat really, really heavily and it's lost a bunch of sweat, its sodium level in its blood is now low. It doesn't have much of a thirst reflex. And I think that's where the saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. I think that's where that comes from, right? You could have been out on the trail for two, three hours. You get to a river, you stand in the river. And your horse is just looking off into the wide blue yonder, right? And you're like, dude, like, drink something. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know he should be thirsty. He's dripping in sweat. But he has no idea he should be thirsty because his sodium level is now dropped enough that he doesn't have much thirst reflex. So if you can give your horses adequate salt, you'll help keep that sodium level up. So even when they sweat, they still have enough circulating sodium to be like, yeah, you know what? I'm kind of thirsty. And it's that same thing. If you eat chips, you know, 10, 15 minutes later, you're like, oh, I need a glass of water or something else, <laughs> right? So <laughs> it's that same thing, right? So I fix a lot of these picky drinkers. I like to add a tablespoon of salt for every 500 pounds of body weight into their feed every day. And that just gives them their maintenance sodium requirement. We're not, we're not replacing any sweat losses there. We're just giving them their daily requirement for salt on a cool day doing no work. So then, you know, then in addition to that, if it's a super hot day, you might add electrolytes and things. So I generally find if I can do that for most average size horses, two tablespoons of salt a day, 365 days of the year, they will drink. And then if you have an issue with not drinking away from home, then, you know, that can be, if you live on a ranch and you go to a, you know, some event at a city equestrian center, maybe it's because the water's chlorinated and they're not used to drinking chlorinated water. Maybe they go from one well source to another well source and the, the amount of dissolved solids is different. So there's a, there's a different like saltiness to the water. That's where, you know, the molasses, the Kool-Aid the, and things in the water, the apple juice that Abby was talking about, that's where that's really helpful. And I totally agree with her. You have to start that several days before you leave. Yeah, and I would also recommend if you have this is from experience. If you have a horse trailer that has a water tank in it and you're thinking by taking your own water, your horse is going to be happy and drink it, try that before you go somewhere. Uh, because with mine, I think it got the water a little plastic tasting and he's like, no. So then you end up away from home yeah. with a horse that won't drink. So check that mm-hmm. out first um, yeah. to make sure. Um, I ended up going I... to the grocery store and buying big jugs of water for him. Oh. Uh, Oh my goodness. (laughs) Well, and I think that's that's a really good point. And you know, we often fill those things up with 30, 50 gallons and leave them in the trailer. And goodness knows Mm -hmm. how long we leave it in there, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and so also drain it and refill it right before you leave so it is somewhat fresh. And I'd also just add, you know, if you are adding things to bucket water for your horse and your race from home, please always give them a plain water as well. Because Mm, you don't ever want to taint your water. Um, and not have just straight water available because they may actually drink the straight water. And, you know, you may have, you may have got yourself in more of a pickle than you started with. So <laughs> I'm, I'm a big believer if you're going to, if you're going to hang a bucket with electrolytes in, always hang a bucket with plain water as well. We have a follow-up question from Michelle in our live audience. Uh, she'd like to know what you would consider to be an appropriate amount of salt in a cold mountain climate. It's this, I would be adding the same. I mean, we underestimate, I think, I don't know, Abby, if you would agree, but I mean, I think we underestimate sometimes how much horses sweat in cold weather if they're working. 
Um, yeah, 100%. because we don't we don't see the sweat, and we've seen that research in trailering too, right? You see horses come off of trailers. There's research showing that horses mm-hmm. on a what 14 hour trailer journey or whatever sweat. I want to say it's as much as the speed and endurance day of a three day event. I mean, it's a lot of sweat, but you don't see yeah. it because there's been air movement over them as they come out of the trailer dry. And it's the same in the in the winter as you, you know we don't. I mean, I, I case in point here, right? So. I, um, you know, I live in Arizona and it's super hot here and the horses are dripping in sweat in the summer and we're suddenly down to sort of 75 and, you know, they're still sweating, but the, the wind was blowing the other day and he came in dry, but I know he was sweating. He was dripping sweat under his saddle pads, but he didn't have any sweat on his neck the way he does normally, but I know he was sweating. Yeah, I so would agree with that I, too. I would, Everybody thinks about, you know, replacing them and, and making sure the horse has salt in the summertime when it's hot. But, you know, like when I was, legging up and showing my rainer a couple of winters ago and it was you know negative 20 but we still would ride and the horse would still sweat <laughs> right and it's really cheap colic insurance right and yes. we know the horses don't tend to drink as much when the water is cold they don't like cold water um, so their inclination to drink is down anyway because the water's cold so if you can make them a little you know if you can get that sodium level up a little bit you may make them that little bit more thirsty and be like mm, it's cold but okay fine <laughs> right I'll drink it um and you know they've gone from maybe being out on pasture on moist forage to this time of year we're starting to bring them in and put them in stalls we see a lot of colic at this time of year because of the management changes that we're subjecting them to going from fresh pasture and a damp diet to dry hay um and you know not moving as much as they were when they were in pasture that kind of a thing so i'm a big believer in salt 365 days of the year really whether you live somewhere where like i am now and it's 75 80 and beautiful <laughs> we're suddenly we're, this is our you know winter is our time to shine here in arizona or whether you live in the northern climates and you're going to get down to minus 20. well and i have to say because of claire i do give my horses additional salt every day and even they have uh, free choice blocks out in their turnouts. They have small blocks in their stalls and I add the salt and they still, because I thought once I added the salt, they'd stop using the free choice um, blocks and they still use the free choice blocks on top of that. So I think uh, I, I was really surprised by how much they actually needed uh, once I started mm-hmm. really paying attention. It was always kind of an afterthought, you know, oh, the block, throw it out there, you know, it'll be fine. Right. Well, and a lot of horses, you know, and that's an important thing. A lot of people may think, well, I'm providing salt, but I've got a block. Very few horses eat much off a block, right? I mean, blocks, salt blocks are really designed for cattle that have rough tongues. Um, horses don't have rough tongues. They have smooth tongues. And quite honestly, the thought of standing and licking a block of salt is bleh. Anyway, <laughs> but they don't tend to lick salt very much, right? So to get two tablespoons of salt off a block, you know, they'd have to go through a two pound block of salt a month. And when you say that to people, they go, oh, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not buying that much salt, block salt. So they're not using their blocks. But that's why I like to put it, you know, as like table salt in their grain or in whatever feed you're feeding or a pan of loose salt. They don't have to lick it. They can just go get it. But I like to do that two tablespoons. And like to your point, Michelle, that is their minimum. It's not necessarily all of what they're going to need. So, yes, you should have some kind of block salt available as well. Yeah, no, it's it's a lot more salt than I ever, ever realized that they needed. So I, I thank Claire for, for that advice. Um, Abby, we have a question for you from Newton in Utah. He wants to know if you're not riding all that regularly, but on occasion you're riding more intensely for a few weeks, should you increase grain during that time that the horse is having more intense exercise? Um, you know, not necessarily, I guess. I think the bigger consideration as you would prepare to go and ride um, intensely is is just to make sure that your horse is getting all of their nutrients and their optimal intake, right? So we can make sure that they stay out of a deficiency, but let's make sure they're getting the optimum levels. Um, So, you know, just as simple as grabbing your feed tag, knowing what your horse's body weight is, do a little math, like my son's doing algebra right now downstairs, (laughs) and see, you know, where you're at. Feeding the the correct amount um, of whatever you know that manufacturer is suggesting on the feed tag um, is kind of the first step. Um, 
the other thing I would think about, I guess I'm, I'm trying to think if, you know, maybe your horse has been sitting idle, but, you know, in three weeks you're going to head out and with friends and you're going to go on this week long, you know, trail riding excursion or something um, and invite me, please. No. <laughs> uh, but I would ask them or think about some questions, you know, is he a good traveler? What is his current body condition score? Um, if you know he's not a good traveler, he's going to lose some weight. He's not going to eat as well. Maybe maybe he's kind of on the fence in terms of being at a healthy body condition. Then, yeah, I think that is a good time to, you know, sort of slowly, gradually increase, you know, the grain or the feed, the product that he's getting as long as it is balanced. So, you know, as an example, if he's eating, you know, six pounds a day of, let's say, Safe Choice Original, um, with his mixed hay at free choice. And again, he's kind of that example I just described, then yes, I would probably start to gradually kind of bump that up a couple of pounds over a good, you know, couple weeks and have him there so that, you know, as he travels, you're not losing a drastic amount of weight um, doing that ride. The other thing you could think about is rather than just increasing whatever product he's on, um, you could bring in a fat supplement. Um, if, if that's the case, again, you, you're concerned with him losing some calories in the diet. Um, you could do it with a, 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 a nice, healthy extruded fat supplement as well. Um, we have a follow-up question from Michelle in our live audience who wants to know, are you recommending regular table salt with iodine or sea salt? Claire, what, what kind of salt should you be getting? Either one. Um, I, you know, I do a lot with iodized table salt. I will say I stay away from iodized table salt if I'm ever putting a diet together for somebody who's feeding any kind of kelp-based product. There are some people that feed, there's, you know, some kelp supplements out there, base supplements. Those are very high in iodine, and I, you know, I don't need any more iodine in that diet. Um, and so I tend to just use sea salt um, for those. Um, but the amount of iodine that you're getting from two tablespoons of, of table salt, I tend to find is actually something that's fairly helpful in the diet. Um, maybe I need a couple of extra milligrams of iodine, so I find that actually useful. So I buy my salt at the feed store, and it's just a big bag of livestock salt. I will say that one time, just the kid who loaded um, picked up the wrong bag of livestock salt, and it was a selenium salt, and so Ooh. took that back. Oh, dear. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was like, oh, careful. that's not right. Um, so, I mean, it's important to pay attention because um, you don't want to overdose your horse on selenium. Um, but I, I caught it and, and got the right bag. But it's super, super inexpensive um, mm -hmm. to, to get that at the feed store. So um, we have a question for Claire from Isabel in Washington, D.C. She wants to know what you think of uh, feeding straw as a partial replacement for hay. Do you, do you have any thoughts on straw? I know in yeah. Europe, straw is used quite a yeah, bit. Yeah, we do. Yeah, I grew up in England and, you know, it's not, I mean, it's not, it's more common, I think, on the continent, you know, France, Germany, than it is in the UK, but um, we certainly do do it in the UK. Um, the difficulty I find here is actually finding straw that I would consider clean enough. <laughs> um, you know, it's not, straw can have a lot of spores in it and um, be quite dusty and um, I don't really consider it clean enough to feed um, but yes in theory you can um, feed straw I don't um, tend to stay away from wheat straw it's pretty it's very shiny right when you look at the stems of it it's very shiny and it's pretty indigestible um, so um, but there are there are yeah there are times where feeding some amount of you know small amount of straw is is fine I mean, it is not going to be particularly digestible. So, um, you know, it's more for horses that struggle with weight issues um, and, um, you know, where you're really struggling to keep that one and a half percent of body weight in front of them and keep them at a, at a good body weight. It can be a, a good option there. Um, but, yeah, the, the difficulty is finding kind of food-grade straw in inverted commas. 
Yeah, I think we at the Horsey, we cover a lot of research studies and coming out of Europe, we see a lot of studies on straw, but what they're talking about, I think it's, you, you two can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's usually like barley straw, where here in the U.S., I think when we think of straw, we think of wheat straw, which is, you know, some people right. add with it, but the horses, straw. Or, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, they'll kind of nibble at it, but maybe not really want to eat it. I, Abby, do you have any recommendations on sourcing uh, appropriate straw for feeding? <laughs> You know, we've got a little bit more access here in the Midwest, um, but it's still, as Claire mentioned, it can get pretty challenging and, and the, you know, dust and finding something that is super, super clean um, is very tricky. <laughs> I would prefer to find lower calorie hay if at all possible. Me too. Um, something that's more mature. Um, and then, you know, if we can at all possible, I know everybody hates to hear this, but exercise, exercise, exercise. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I mean, I see some, I see some Timothy Hayes. I've, you know, I've been, you know, I mean, you guys analyze a lot more hay than I do, but you know, I've been surprised over the years looking at Timothy. Like, some of that Timothy is like over forty percent ADF, um, yeah. and which is the which is the indigestible fiber component, and um, you know, it's pretty stemmy. At, and um, you know, to, to Abby's point, if you can find a mature grass hay um you know that's been made for horses maybe the weather was such they couldn't get in to cut it so it got it grew for longer um and therefore it's more stemmy but it's clean because it was grown for horses that, that probably is a better choice so claire mentioned or uh, abby mentioned exercise so i'm going to give this next <laughs> question to abby it's from susan in vermont and she wants to know how much exercise does my horse need to gradually lose weight he's on limited pasture and he, she rotates pastures and the horse gets daily turnout. So how, how much exercise do horses need to lose weight? More than we think they do, right? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunate answer. Yeah. Um, you know, I would say every horse is going to be an individual. Um, to me, it's, you know, start start small, right? So if the horse hasn't been doing any exercise, we've got to gradually work him up. Um, but, you know, I think Claire gave a great description of kind of what that recreational level even looks like of, you know, 45 minutes of work and, and then maybe a day of rest. Um, you know, I think we were kind of joking about this the other day about, you know, even just starting with walking your horse, you know, all of us, I need more exercise. I need to go for walks. <laughs> um, and it encourages me to start, you know, taking my horse on walks so that they can start to, to get some more, um, exercise in. So I, I love that you're, I think it says you're, uh, you said something about rotating pastures or it sounds like the horse is turned out, um, but maybe not doing any forced exercise yet. So, so just starting small, um, you know, ponying the horse if you can off with another horse is another great idea. Um, but, you know, trying to work up gradually, maybe starting with 10 minutes a day and, and just bumping that up every week, a few minutes. I spent a season uh, a couple years ago uh, conditioning with endurance riders, and it gave me a, mm. a whole another level of appreciation for how much work a horse can do. Mm. So <laughs> my my, my yeah. horse ambling down the trail is not the same as uh, getting out there and doing trot sets um, to, to build condition. I think our horses are much more capable than we give them credit for if we <laughs> condition them yeah. slowly. You know, you don't just go out and, and do a 25 mile ride, but uh, build up to it. Um, and as a rider, you get stronger too. So yes, 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 our cores. I had to laugh to that note. Um, a friend of mine just went from showing pleasure horses um, to showing rainers. And mm -hmm. so she got her first rainer this year. And and I was, you know, well, what's the biggest change you feel like? And she said, I just don't get it. I, you know, it used to take me 20 minutes to get my horse out and, and ride and kind of get my work done for the day. And these rainers, it's like a two hour process <laughs> <laughs> to get through all the maneuvers and the exercises. So I had to laugh. Yeah. But yeah, yeah they are definitely capable of more than we, we think they can do. Yeah. Um, we have a question from the live audience. Uh, Claire, I'll give this one to you. It's from Bonnie, um, who has a, an 18-year-old Lipizzan gelding who has uh, a history of entroliths, uh, and she's gotten mixed advice on whether her horse should have alfalfa. Uh, can you touch on why that horse may or may not want 
need to eat alfalfa or should eat alfalfa with with that history? Um, so did, has the horse had enterolith before, or she's just yes. concerned about enterolith? My, he I, has had enterolith before. From, from the question, it seems like she, the horse has a history of them. Mm, yeah. No, I mean, it's, it is the, you know, there's something about alfalfa that, that, you know, we know it's more likely to cause like the struvite, you know, crystals that result in the enterolith forming. Um, and so that's why we generally recommend staying away from alfalfa with horses that have a history of enterolith. I typically, in the rations I put together, if I'm putting alfalfa in a ration, I don't put more than 25 to 30% of the total forage as alfalfa. Um, partly for the enterolith concern, partly just because it ends up being a very high protein, high calcium diet if I put more than that in. Um, but yeah, and you know, with it being an Iberian bred horse, you know, those horses are typically fairly easy keepers as well. And alfalfa is a higher calorie uh, per pound feed, uh, hay. And so, you know, if, generally I've worked with quite a number of Iberian horses and they generally are pretty easy keepers. And so, you know, going back to Abby's point about always wanting to keep one and a half percent of their body weight of hay in front of them during the day as a minimum, the higher the calorie content of your hay, the harder that is to do because, um, you know, every pound, the higher the calories per pound, the fewer pounds you can feed, you need to meet their requirement. And so then it's a struggle to then put enough forage in front of them. So those easy keeper breeds, and I put the Iberian breeds in that bracket, um, you know, I'm looking for grass haze, I'm looking for slightly later maturity haze, haze where I can keep the calories as low as possible, but honor that need for at least one and a half percent of body weight per day. And I struggle to achieve that um, when I put alfalfa in those rations. Now, if that horse is like, I have a Iberian breeds that do dressage at a pretty high level, those horses, yes, I'll put some alfalfa in the diet, but they're working five, six days a week, you know, doing pretty high level dressage. They're working so, pretty hard. So I think one of the reasons Bonnie was considering feeding alfalfa is the horse has a history, history of gastric ulcers. So Abby, do you have ah. any recommendations besides alfalfa for, for feeding horses with gastric ulcers? Because that's, I mean, those of us who, it seems like we all have an ulcery horse and alfalfa does tend to be good for them, but if they can't have it, then what options do you have? Yeah, um, so alfalfa, right, does have that higher calcium content and does a great job of buffering, um, but can be associated with some calories as well. Um, you know, certainly from a, a gastric ulcer perspective, um, you know, you could feed some just a small amount of alfalfa, you know, prior to a ride. We talked about having kind of that hay mat in the stomach from a buffering standpoint. Um, another thing you can do, um, you know, obviously having some kind of hay even is going to help. So fed in a nibble nut, even if it is lower um, in calories. Um, there are some products on the market that do have like a marine sourced calcite in them. Um, and what that does is, is help again to buffer that stomach acid. So perhaps looking into one of those, um, we actually make one, it's called Empower Digestive Balance. And so it's working to, again, buffer that stomach acid that's continuously secreted. Um, it has also a zinc butyrate in there because we know that that helps to improve the um, tight junctions as well within the intestinal lining. Um, and I, I don't think you were asking about starch and sugar, but obviously the total diet, we want to keep with a nice controlled starch and sugar uh, intake and, and per meal as well with those horses. Yeah. And I think it's it's important with horses that do suffer with gastric ulcers. It's not just the performance horses that have them, right? Yeah. Like, yep. it's, do you, mm -hmm. Abby, do you have an idea? There's a percentage, isn't there, of of recreational horses that still have them, like I think it's like 60%, even though they yeah, that's one of the numbers. There's several different studies and numbers, but yeah, that 60% kind of sticks out there too. I always yeah, tell so people too that right, like every horse is going to handle just like people. We all handle stress differently, yeah. <laughs> and so even if we're talking about a recreational horse that you know isn't being shown at a high high performance level, just that act of you know getting on the trailer to go to a trail ride can certainly be stressful and, and they can definitely suffer from gastric ulcers as well. 
So we have a question from our live audience, and I think this is the last one we're going to be able to get to. Claire, Cheryl wants to know if you have some do's and don'ts for soaking hay. So can you touch on why someone might want to soak hay and then recommendations for how to do that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yes, if you need to be feeding your horse a low starch, low sugar diet because they have like, insulin dysregulation or maybe they have PFSM type 1 or something like that, and you are not able to test your hay, you don't know what the starch and sugar content is, we generally recommend you soak that hay because it helps to uh, dissolve out some of the water-soluble sugar that's in there. Or maybe you have a hay and it's tested and it's slightly above that magic 12% we talked about earlier that we're all striving <laughs> to get to and rarely ever achieve. Um, so it will help lower the, the sugar content, the water-soluble sugar. Now, will it lower it down below that magic 12? You know, we don't know unless you were to test it again, but we know it will be lower than it would be if you hadn't soaked it. So that's why we typically recommend soaking it. And there's been a lot of studies in, you know, soaking hay. And I, um, I generally recommend people soak for about 30 to 60 minutes. If you have warmer water, you can soak for the kind of lower end of that sort of 30 minutes. If your water's cold, you can go to 60 minutes. Um, and Abby might be aware of some other research that I'm not aware of, but that's that's kind of where I tend to go with that. There's also yeah. research that shows, you know, that's looking at, has looked at the same hay, soaking it for, you know, that length of time, four hours, 12 hours, 24 hours. And what we find is, is the longer you soak it, you do start to then leach out some things that you actually want to keep in the hay. Um, uh, the other time you might actually want to soak hay is if you have a horse that has HYPP and you need to lower the potassium, soaking for longer will get rid of some of your potassium. But if you need to do that, I would work with a nutritionist to kind of, you know, you're going to have to put some other things back in there that might also come out as well. But I just wanted to throw that out there too. Um, yeah. And always make sure you, to toss the water. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. That. It seems like common water. Right. That's where the sugar has gone. But I, I have actually heard of a couple of situations where the, where the owner actually then gave the horse the water. So oh. something to be aware of. Yeah, no, don't do that. And, and also don't, um, you know, I've spent some time working with, um, you know, pe people that work in, I can't think of the right word now, but certainly where, where Michelle is up in the Pacific Northwest, they have very stringent water quality rules. And that water you've soaked off is essentially effluent, right? So be careful too where you put it off. Don't just like dump it on the ground, especially you have water courses near you or not, you know, streams and things because it can contaminate your water courses so it needs to go down a, a drain um and yeah. not just be you know it needs to be careful with what you're doing with it um soaked hay needs to be fed you, you know you soak it i recommend put it in a net and then soak it because I, I was a groom when i was in in college and let me tell you that is a mess when you when you soak hay and you don't have it in a net and then you're trying to like it's like trying to get spaghetti out of a bowl of water i mean it's just a disaster put it in a net Put it in the bucket, put something heavy on top of it. It needs to be completely submerged, right? So like a brick or something, make it sure it's totally under the water. You know, if it's in a net, you can then hang it up. I've seen some great places where they've put like a hook system where like or a winch or whatever, and they'll like hang it up and then let it drip into the bucket they were soaking it in to contain that dripping water. Um, so that it's not like actively dripping when they like take it in the stall. Um, because again, depending on where you live, you can end up with like cold <laughs> ice on the ground and things. So you need to be a little bit from a safety standpoint, just be careful of that. Um, you don't want to leave it soaking for a long period of time either. It will start to go, you know, can, you have a mold issue. So you need to make sure that the horses actually consume all the soaked hay. So if you put it in in the morning and then you come back at night and there's some left, I would recommend taking that out and getting rid of it and then put your fresh hay in. Um, I've seen some people where they, you know, put new wet hay in a feeder on top of the old wet hay, and after a few days, it's pretty disgusting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, you need to get rid. You need to get rid of whatever they don't eat. The other reason to soak hay is if your horse um, has allergies and has issues with dust, you can soak your hay. It'll it'll cause the dust spores to swell up. So that they're not then able to breathe them in. Um, so that's another time to soak hay, but you don't have to soak it quite as long. If that's your sole purpose for soaking, you just have to soak it and get it all wet all the way through. Um, but again, you know, for them, I'd say like 30 minutes and you'd be fine. 
Yeah. And that's my only experience with it is with a horse that had asthma and wetting it down so it wasn't dusty. Uh, but when you get into uh, soaking the hay, it just adds a whole nother level of management, especially in cold climates, it, you're fighting with freezing and in hot climates, you're fighting with it spoiling. Yeah. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, right. my hats off to people and who uh, have to do that to manage their horses. I right. haven't knock on wood had one that I've had to do it with yet. <laughs> And it's hot to some people, you know, I mean, I live out, you know, you're in the Pacific Northwest. I'm in the, you know, in Arizona, California, you know, Western states are really struggling with drought right now. A lot of barns, you know, you can't soak, right? There's, no. there's no, there's no, not the water available to soak. It goes through a lot of water. Um, and so it can be really difficult for people um, who are being told that they need to soak their hay. Um, and so if you're in that situation, you know, reach out to a nutritionist who can maybe help you find, um, some, some low NSC alternatives. Um, or if you have a horse that, um, you need to soak for allergy reasons, you might want to consider steaming instead. Yeah. Hay tests are generally fairly inexpensive, you know, 20 to $30, um, and well worth it when you're in that situation where you need that low NSC hay. Yep. Well, unfortunately, uh, that's all the time we have. We've actually gone over a little bit. So thank you for sticking with us um, for a few extra minutes um, so that we could get to that last last question. I want to thank both Claire and Abby for joining us. This has been a great conversation. I could talk nutrition with you guys all the time. It's really been (laughs) been a great conversation. It's fun, isn't it? It is. It is. (laughs) Well, it's uh, been a pleasure. It's been great fun. Yes, thanks so much for having us. Um, I also want to thank our sponsor, Neutrina, and I want to thank everyone for joining us live and for listening. And those of you who download us during the podcast later on. Um, Until next time, uh, from all of us here at The Horse, have a great night.